You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. A blessed Easter to everyone as we are in the midst of this beautiful season of Pascha, of the Passover from death to life here at Annie Mitchell on the third Sunday of this Easter season. Indeed. And um, these are the readings that we will be studying today. Get out your notebook, get out your Bibles and uh, write this down. The first reading is from Acts chapter five, and Mm -hmm. we're going from verses 27 to 32 and then verses 40 and 41. Our Mm -hmm. responsorial psalm is from Psalm 30. The gospel for this Sunday is John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. And the second reading is Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Let's do it. Let's jump in. Let's jump right in. And the first reading for this weekend, the third Sunday of Easter, Acts chapter 5, and then uh, we'll start with verse 27. There's a part we skip over there, so if you're reading along in your Bible, I'm going to skip a part that I'm going to want to ask Father about here in a minute. You're going to skip from verse 33 through 39, right? Exactly, Yeah. exactly. So here we go. When the captain and the court officers had brought the apostles in and made them stand before the Sanhedrin, the high priest questioned them. We gave you strict orders, did we not, to stop teaching in that name? Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and want to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles said in reply, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus, though you had him killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to grant Israel repentance and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, as is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The Sanhedrin ordered the apostles to stop speaking in the name of Jesus and dismissed them. So they left the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been found worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. All right. There you have it. There you have it. So Father, last weekend, on the second Sunday of Easter, the octave Sunday, mm-hmm. um, we were reading from Acts chapter five, verses 12 through 16. And just for everybody's mm-hmm. sake, that was, uh, you know, Peter and the other apostles who were were healing 
just like Jesus did when when he was alive and walking on the earth. So this reading is taking place, what, like 11 verses later, I think, starting in in, uh, verse 27. What was happening in between that they're now standing in front of the Sanhedrin? Well, I mean, you could just do a quick scan there, verse 17, but all the high priests rose up and all that were with him, that is the part of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles. So obviously, so, I mean, this is really, I'm glad you asked this question because we just keep reading that, but why are they filled with jealousy? Well, they're filled with jealousy because of what you were reading the few verses before that, which is the reading last week, which was that they're healing everybody, right? And all of a sudden, what they had thought they had dealt with in, in, in murdering Christ, they uh, suddenly, they like multiplied the problem, right? So now they not only have one guy doing it, they've got 11 guys, probably plus some, right? And so (laughs) now their, their problem is rather, rather difficult. So they're filled with jealousy because obviously they're not going around healing people, right? They're not going around doing what Jesus was doing, right? And so they've killed the author of life. And now just like a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies and then gives right newness of life. So now Mm -hmm. Jesus having been buried, if you will, and he's uh, life comes springing forth from the, from the tomb. And now the apostles, so they're filled with jealousy. So what did they do? What would they do to Jesus? They arrest him. But now something more takes place. And that is that in the middle of the night, there is this miraculous freeing of the apostles that you get there verse 19 but at night an angel of the lord uh, opened the prison doors and brought them out and said go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life and when they heard this they entered the temple at daybreak and taught and so so this is what this is what takes place and of course then then the sadducees and all the rulers of the jews are now they're going to lose their mind because now what are they going to do now right now there's angels are appearing these guys are they can't keep them in prison <laughs> And so now they're very careful. They go and they're like, okay, now can we just talk for a minute? <laughs> Let's try this a different way. And this is what happens. They find them in the, in the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem, preaching, of course, the resurrection. You know, this is very important. The, the content of the apostolic preaching was quite simple. It, that Jesus has come to give his life for us. And that that life is not bound by death. As St. Paul says in Romans 6, Christ having died once, death no longer has dominion over him. And so they went out into the temple preaching the answer to the one problem that has that has haunted mankind since the fall of our first parents, and that is death. And we all know that we, we're all, we, we always ask the question, or almost so often ask the question at a funeral, why? Yeah. Because we're trying to put reason and rationality to what we see in front of us. Of course, there is no rationality or reason to to irrationality, right? right? There is no reason or rationality to death. And but we try to put ration. And of course, when we can't, and we can't, then the only proper response is to weep and to cry. And that and that is certain proof that we are not made for this. Yeah. So so the apostles go into the, the temple and they're soon to go out into the entire world to preach this message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right. So, Father, then we have this this interesting exchange between Peter and the apostles and the Sanhedrin. You know, Peter saying that, you know, we have to obey God. We can't obey men. You hung him on a tree, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this, I'm hoping, Andy, Andy, yeah. you're going to stop and be like, this is this is exactly what Peter does, right? He gets again, gets in their face. 
he does this multiple times. He's like, well, you, you killed the Messiah. Like, you, did. you guys killed the one we waited for like 600 years. You killed him. Well, then, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Doesn't it say in the Gospels some, I, I mean, I should have looked this up before we, we came together here, but I didn't. Doesn't the high priest, doesn't Caiaphas at some point say, may his blood be upon us somewhere in the Gospels? I think he does. There's actually two really critical passages in the, in the passion narrative that are like kind of, they're kind of turning points in which this thing goes completely in the wrong direction for the right. Jews who are, who are seeking Christ's death. And that is both in, in John 19, this is always strikes me during, during Holy week when, when this is said, I'm in John chapter 19 and Pilate says in verse 15, Verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Yeah. Okay, now there's there's like a critical turning point, right? Because the word king there is Messiah. Mm. We have no Messiah but Caesar. Wow. In other, in other words, they have lost all hope that God is going to send them the Messiah that they'd expected to come since the time of the Babylonian exile. And another turning point really is picked up in Matthew chapter 27, when chapter 27, verse 25, Matthew 27, 25, and all the people answered his blood be upon us hmm. and our children. And I just, I don't make too big of a deal about this, like generational curses and stuff like that. Sure, but, sure. but as far as the text itself is concerned, these are dramatic moments in which they're, they're, they're setting themselves against God. They're setting themselves against the Messiah. And so, and so this is really going back to what we were talking about, the fundamental core of Peter's message. And that is, well, you have to admit what you did, right? You, exactly. You, I mean, he's just stating right. facts. <laughs> and, then, and then, but the good news is that he's risen from the dead. Right. Yeah. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel message of Jesus Christ? It, it, it is the, the news of the resurrection. Right. He's mm -hmm. come to give us life because this solves not only the problem of Babylonian exile. This solves the problem of our first parents. This solves the problem of the fall. And it's all uh, it. That's the, the, the kernel, the, the, the heart into which we are baptized. Yes. And become mm -hmm. participants. Can we go over what is omitted from this this first reading for this weekend in Acts five? Because I mean, I'm wondering. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just like it's good. okay, so they have this exchange and then they let him go, right. and it's like, what happened there? Why did the Sanhedrin decide right. to let the apostles go? So you get this you get this this conversation that takes place from verse thirty three, and then where do we pick up our reading today? We pick it up in verse 40. 40, right? So yeah. 33 to 39 is this conversation that happens in which one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin, one of the Pharisees, Gamaliel, stands up and, and gives advice. Now, this guy was a high-end rabbi. He was a leader. And in fact, we find out that we, he comes up again in Acts chapter 22, verse let's see acts 22 right this is verse verse three this is saint paul talking saint paul mm -hmm. says i am a jew born at tarsus in cilicia 
but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Wow. Okay. And so St. Paul was a disciple of this guy and this, and he was a, he was known. I mean, he's known among in Jewish history too, not just, not just in acts of the apostles, but as one of the real powerhouse rabbis at the time. So what does he say? It's very important to see this because you have to understand what's going on at the time of Christ. They expected the Messiah to come. Remember at the, on the edge of the Jordan river, they see John the Baptist is doing, are you the Messiah, right? Are you the Christ? Because they're expecting God to send the Messiah. They'd done the calculations of when they expected the return of the Messiah based upon the prophecies of, of, of Jeremiah and Daniel and the return of God's people to the promised land and the restoration of the Davidic king, Davidic kingdom. And so they're looking for the Messiah. They're hungry. So what are you going to do? Well, look, I mean, if you're looking for the end of the world, you're going to look around for people telling you that the end of the world, right? The turn of the millennium back in 1900. Yeah, that's that's back, you know, so 122 years ago. There were all sorts of crackpots running around, right? That's when the Seventh-day Adventists came out. That's when the mm-hmm. Jehovah's Witnesses came out. That's all these guys were coming, the Adventists, right? They're like, the second coming's happening. It's coming, it's coming. It's going to happen in the year 1900. Ooh, it kind of made it. don't work out. No, 1914. Oh, it's World War One. Oh, we missed the signs of the time. No, 1918. That's the end of World War. Maybe 1925, because that's a good middle, you know, quarter of the century. This is what's going on. Right. I mean, heck, there are, I mean, even just in recent years, I've seen preachers oh. try to say that the end of the world is coming this year. So there's all sorts of crackpots out there. Well, there was crackpots at the time of Jesus, too. <laughs> and they mention them here from verse 33 to 39. Look at this. Verse 36. This is Gamaliel saying, for before these days, Theudas arose, giving himself out to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he, they, he was slain and all have fallen and dispersed. After him, Judas the Galilean, this is not Judas Iscariot, okay, arose in the days of uh, the census and drew some away. That's probably the census talking about at the time of Christ, right? Yeah. During, all during that time, they, they're like, the Messiah is coming. So you get all these guys claiming to be the Messiah. So they think Jesus is just one of, another one of these guys, right? Because they were blind to yeah. his work. And so he's, what does he say? He says that these guys dispersed also. So just leave these guys alone and nothing's going to come of it. But then he says something very prophetic in verse 39. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Wow. Says the teacher of St. Paul. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Wow. Wow. And so, and so that's exactly what, of course, Okay, so that's the beginning of verse 40. So they took his advice. Right, they took his advice. Yeah. And they're like, well, okay, everybody calm down. Just let these guys do their thing. Don't arrest them anymore because we're causing a riot among the people. Because then Pete, we're starting to follow them. And you have to, you have to understand, we're in now in Acts 5. Where is Pentecost? Acts 2. Right, and how many yeah. people were baptized on Pentecost? Oh, gosh. Now that's an answer I don't know right off the top of my head. Yeah, it's right here. I'm going to show going back to Acts chapter two. Look, it's right here. Verse 41. So those who, sorry, Acts 2, 41. So those who were received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls. Okay. And so you got to imagine Jerusalem. 
In fact, it says that many, here in a few verses, many of the priests followed them. So there was a whole conversion that happened, right? Nicodemus didn't like disappear. Joseph of Arimathea, very influential men. And so all of a sudden, there's a mass conversion apps in Jerusalem. We think of the early church and it's kind of this nice little group in the upper room. And there's Mary and Mary Magdalene and there's the apostles. No, Jerusalem converted to Christ. Yeah. A massive number of people became followers of Jesus Christ. And of course, now we're in Acts 5. They tried to arrest the apostles and now they're just like, uh, I think we should get out of the way. And that's exactly what they do. And of course, we know what happens now. Just they continually many, 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 many more convert. Right. And I think it's kind of incredible. Um, It says in here, you know, that the apostles left. So they get let go by the Sanhedrin. And it says they they left the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they Mm -hmm. had been found worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. So they were not rejoicing because they were let go. They were rejoicing because they were found worthy to suffer. Yeah, St. Saint, Saint Irenaeus says, the glory of God, let me see if I can do this from memory. The glory of God is man fully alive. Okay, I'll, I'm going to unpack this in a minute. The glory of, of God is man fully alive, but the life of man is the vision of God. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. So your, your question was about glory, right? Yeah. So there it is. They have their vision set upon God Mm -hmm. and therefore they rejoice because they're actually living. Right. Um, and, and, and their life is now in Christ. You remember St. Thomas, uh, the apostle gets a bad rep at this time of year because he's like, I'm not going to believe, but you know, it was St. Thomas that said, let us go up to Jerusalem with him that we might die with him. Yeah. Right. Why? Why? Because he believed in the resurrection. And these people believe in the resurrection are counted worthy of being likened to Christ in their sufferings, not because they're masochistic or something like that, yeah. but because they, they know that in being united to Christ in his sufferings, they will also be united to him in the likeness of the resurrection. I, I got a beautiful quote here from St. John Chrysostom. Let me share this with you and then we can, we can probably move on. It is altogether impossible to put into words the great joy that came to those who suffered something terrible for Christ's sake. For they delighted more in the sufferings than in good things. If someone loves Christ, he understands what I'm about to say. But what about safety? What owner of countless riches, I ask, could escape so many dangers, visiting so many different peoples for the sole purpose of transforming their way of life for they accomplished everything as if it was by imperial decree only more easily for a decree would not have been so effectual as were the words of those men an imperial decree compels by necessity but these men drew followers who came willingly spontaneously and gratefully beyond measure and just a little note about that that point about saint john christism is saying the imperial decree is by necessity Right, which is a dictation, which is a yeah. dictatorial law, right? Or positive mm-hmm. law, if you will. But the law of Christ is love, and love is always in an atmosphere of freedom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's only there that we can find true joy. What imperial decree I ask could have persuaded people to part with all their pro- property in their lives to despise home, country, kindred, and even self preservation? Yet the voices of fishermen and tent makers accomplished this. So that they were both happy and stronger, more powerful than all others. It, I often am saying what it must have been like to go back to the upper room at night during this time. And they're 
and they're like, what, 3,000? I baptized on, on Pascha. I baptized three people. And I was exhausted. Okay? <laughs> they baptized 3,000 people. That's incredible. Could you imagine what that was yeah. like? Can you imagine that, that just being just the just going back and being totally exhausted, but totally filled with the life of God. No matter, it was just the 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 power of God was pouring out of them. And they were seeing what Jesus had been doing for three years and now being done at their hands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they rejoice in their union with Christ in this way. Annie, can we move very quickly to the responsorial psalm? Because I just want to tie this in also. Yeah, absolutely. So, psalm 30. I mean, it seems like the this is a, a psalm that the apostles very well could have been chanting as right. they left the Sanhedrin. Psalm 30. I will praise you, Lord, for you have rescued me. Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you drew me clear and did not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, you brought me up from the netherworld. You preserve me from among those going down into the pit. So this is, this is super important, is it right? Our Christian faith doesn't say we're not going to suffer. It doesn't mean we're not going to endure bad things, difficult things. In fact, it says that we are, right? We're going to be likened to Christ. But then we will be brought up, right? That is our hope. That is our expectation that having been united to Christ in his self-giving love, we will also be united with him in that same self-giving love, right? In the resurrected life, which is what, which is what St. Paul says in Romans chapter six. Take a look very quickly. I, I oftentimes refer to this because in the Byzantine tradition, this is the epistle, which is read at every baptism. Hmm. <clears throat> it's super important. It's the center of St. Paul's teaching on baptism. What happens to us in our union with Christ. Romans chapter six, verse Three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. This is the newness of life now that the apostles are walking in, having been totally united to Christ, yeah, made one with him. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Christians... You died in baptism. Baptism, to be baptized is to plunge into. Yeah, you are plunged into his death, which is why the church traditionally baptized by immersion, right? Because it shows forth this reality of being buried. So we are buried with Christ in baptism. We die with him in baptism to our old self, right? To, to the dominion of the evil one, which is has the hallmark of death. We died to that's over with. We now walk in a newness of life, the life of the resurrection. Death no longer has dominion over Christ. Therefore, we who have been baptized into him, we who have died with him in baptism, death no longer has dominion over us, no matter what they bring against us. Whether it's persecution from others, whether it's illness, cancer, whatever the case may be. Death no longer has dominion over us. We do not talk about Christians dying. We talk about Christians falling asleep in the Lord. Yes. When our our bodies pass from this world, we close our eyes 
to the side of the veil. We open them to the next to see the, the face of our best friend. So come what may. Have no fear of what the world is going to do to us. Have no fear, for God's sake. Have no fear of, of, of viruses, you know? We're going to die one way or the other in the sense of a, of a, of a bodily death. We are going to see the face of, of our best friend and we are going to live forever and we will enjoy the bodily resurrection when it comes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that we'll see at the end of our gospel reading, actually, that's um, right. in Jesus's conversation with, with Peter. So let's get right to the gospel now. John chapter 21, 21 verses 1 through 19. At that time, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Together were Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. So they went out and got into the boat but that night they caught nothing. When it was already dawn, Jesus was standing on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, have you caught anything to eat? They answered him, no. So he said to them, cast the net over the right side of the boat and you will find something. So they cast it and were not able to pull it in because the number of fish. So the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tucked in his garment for he was lightly clad and jumped into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat for they were not far from shore, only about a hundred yards, dragging the net with the fish. When they climbed out on shore, they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you just caught. So Simon Peter went over and dragged the net ashore full of 153 large fish. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they realized it was the Lord. Jesus came over and took the bread and gave it to them. And in a like manner, the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to his disciples after being raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon Peter answered him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He then said to Simon Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon Peter answered him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed that Jesus had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Amen, amen, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands 
and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. He said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had said this, he said to him, follow me. Wow, there's so much going on in this reading that we have to unpack such a beautiful, beautiful passage that we have this weekend. But let's start with a little bit of context here, because the last thing that happened in the Gospel of John prior to this, this reading was that whole Doubting Thomas mm-hmm. passage, right? And and that was taking place, I think, if I'm not mistaken, in the upper room in Jerusalem, right? So That's right. now we are on the Sea of Tiberias. So how far away is that? It's about 100 miles. It's just a oh. little over 100 miles. The Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. Okay. It's also called the Lake of Gennesaret. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's three names for it. Tiberius is Caesar. Of course, you know, when they, when the Romans conquered lands, they would just, they, you know, I don't know, march along the sea, be like, oh yeah, we're going to name that after Caesar because it looks really good for us. Okay. So they built a, uh, the city of Tiberius there on the Sea of Galilee, which you can still visit the, the, the city today if you want, although it's just a modern it's really nothing much to see, but but there it is. So there, there's about a hundred miles, a five day walk, right? A twenty miles, about right. Maybe they're doing about 20, 25 miles a day. Maybe they're doing less. Who knows? So five days, four days, seven days, whatever it took to get up there. Yep. Okay, somewhere around there. Now, I, I want I do want to mention also, Annie, about this passage in general that we have a talk on the institute website called "On the Eighth Day." appearances of the resurrected Christ in which I go through a study and, and talk about where he went and, and so forth and all the, the different accounts of where Jesus appeared after the resurrection. It's a little confusing in some places about what took place first, second, third, and fourth and what's going on. So if you want to go deeper into this area of study, there it is. Okay. On the eighth day appearances of the resurrected Lord. Now, when we look at this story, I mean, the beginning of it, so we've got fishermen who go out to sea to catch some fish and they don't catch anything until Jesus tells them to cast the net again. I mean, that right. sounds kind of familiar, Father. It does, but the familiar, you know, actually there's two things in this passage that are quite familiar. The next part we're going to get to in just a minute. But this one, of course, when you have familiarity, that means for us rational human beings that you have a memory. And memories are given to us to evoke and say, oh, learning lesson. Yeah, well, what's the learning lesson? Take a look back at Luke chapter five, I think it is. Luke chapter five. Um, Luke chapter five, verse four. Right. Yeah. Luke chapter five. Go ahead, Annie. Read us from verse four. It says, and when he had ceased speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Okay, we know the story. Verse 10. Verse 10. Let me move on to verse 10. And so also were James and John, son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid henceforth you will be catching men right so 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 jesus doesn't say go put your net to the other side 
of course, he is the master of all creation. So there's a reason why they didn't catch fish, right? And so we know where they're, where they're fishing, right? There where he had called them in the first place, right? This, is, this, is, this area is known because, and we're going to, let's go, we'll put up right here on the screen for you. This is a waterfall. I've shown this to you many times before. This beautiful waterfall comes pouring out into the Sea of Galilee. Okay, we can take it down now. And the water there is a little bit warmer. The spring water is a little warmer than the temperature of the lake. And so the, oh, right. the tilapia, which are the natural fish that, that swim in the, that are there in the lake, as well as a, a lot of catfish and things like that, love that warm water. So you can go there. I take people there and we go on our pilgrimage to the Holy Land. God willing, we'll be able to go possibly next year. But the fish come there in the mornings. You can't believe it. I've never seen like it ever. And I love fishing. I love being on the water. This is the only place I've ever seen this. And it's teams of fish, just schools, just like like jumping over each other to try to get to the warm water it's amazing so we know that this was the location that jesus called the apostle even today this is where the fishermen fish i've stood there on that very bank and had guys out there and they're they're putting out their nets and stuff like that and fishing in the morning so jesus goes to the same place he knows where they're going to be and then he the same occurrence like man we haven't fished in this spot it's usually awesome and terrible today and Jesus says the same thing. And remember, what's the key? Well, you're not supposed to be out there fishing, guys. What are you you're doing, supposed man? to be fishing for men, right? And so this is happening, of course. Be, remember, we're kind of liturgically now, really, we could have flipped our study here because this happens before the epistle in this case, right? So sure. before the Acts, before Acts of the Apostles, I should say. And so... So there, there you have it. They're, they're out there and Jesus reminds them of their real calling in life. Love it. So I want to talk about this exchange with Jesus and Peter. I mean, it's such a beautiful conversation that we see, but I want to ask you this because it's one of those passages, just like Matthew 16, 18, you know, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. It's one of those passages that you see folks point to to kind of defend the papacy and and show the the primacy of Peter. And whenever we d- you discuss Matthew 16 18 this the Peter the rock passage whenever it comes up you say you're you're not focusing on the right thing that you're always supposed to read scripture christocentrically. Right. So I'm wondering if you can take us through this particular conversation in John 21 here, if you could take us through that Christocentrically. Sure. The thing is that all scripture must be read Christocentrically, right? And when we get into apologetics, a lot of times we fall into this mistake. And that is we start getting our, our nose pulled here or there but on the who's asking us the question or challenging mm-hmm. the faith, right? But if we keep this principle in mind, we're going to be able to find our way out of the maze that ends up happening in apologetic conversations. And as I always say, what does this have to do with Jesus? And only then we'll be able to understand what it has to do with Peter. And this is a great example as Matthew 16, 18 is right. Matthew 16, 18, thou art Peter upon this rock will build my church. We quote that from memory. Thou art Peter upon this rock will build my church. But we forget the verse before it, in which Peter says, thou art Christ, right? You are the Messiah. And it's only then that knowing that Jesus is the Messiah that we can understand Peter's role in, in the kingdom. So, so this is another good example of that, that we want to make sure that we're always reading Christocentrically. And, and this is maybe even another layer of, of, of understanding that. And that is, and that is it's, it's found in the story itself in which Peter 
um, uh, says something and does something which impact this story. Mm-hmm. And it's very much Peter centered. Yeah. Whereas this story is a corrective to Peter's non Christocentric understanding. And this passage here is a corrective. It gives us the Christocentric understanding. And this is what I mean by it. So first of all, Peter's out there fishing, cast your nets to the other side. And now we get the, the, the whole thing. We, we talk a lot about this, this conversation, which happens now. Okay. Sure. Jesus is standing on the shore. You can go visit the location today. I love to go swimming out in the water there, even though it's not allowed because I just go out, I have to go out there because you have to see it from Peter's perspective. Sure. Jesus is standing on the shore and sees the charcoal fire, right? Which again, like the throw your net is a memory for Peter, right? Yeah. Jesus does this intentionally. He's standing there and saying, Peter, look at the charcoal fire. Because the last time that, uh, that, that, that there was a charcoal fire in a conversation in which Jesus and Peter were both present was when? Peter denied him three times. Peter denied him three times. And that, that comes to us in John chapter 18, verse 18, right? In which we're standing around a charcoal fire at Jesus's trial. But of course, that story of Jesus, uh, Peter's three time denial and the cock crowing and so forth is rooted in an earlier conversation, which is in John chapter 14. I'm sorry, John chapter 13 at the last supper, Mm -hmm. John chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered where I'm going. You cannot come. You cannot, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. Of course, Jesus is talking about his going to the passion, right? And going into death. And he's going, you're going to follow me there, right? And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times, right? So there's, those are the passages now. What's Peter saying? Jesus you can count on me. I, I, Jesus, will never fail you. And Jesus says, really, Peter? You will never be able to follow me because you are a fallen human being. You will only be able to follow me when you die to yourself and my life fills you up right? And this is what's going on. Peter's relying upon his own strength. Peter's that guy who can go on and be like, give me the 153 fish. That yeah, dude, he just dragged that whole thing yeah, in. They could, it was too big for him to try and show Peter grabs it himself, right? This is Peter. I can do it. I'm doing it, right? And then unfortunately in this case, he can't do it. And he ends up failing three times to do what he said he would be able to do, which is the center and core of this whole gospel passage now. And what you have to understand in this conversation is that the Greek, I'm sorry, that the English language betrays the biblical text. Sure. Because it only gives us a partial understanding of really what's taking place. Now, Father Hezekiah doesn't speak or read Greek, at least not very well. So I have to rely upon other scholars to be able to help me work through this. But what those scholars have pointed out very beautifully is that there is a a change of Greek 
of the, in the, the, mm -hmm. the Greek language you know, for the word love here in the conversation, it goes like this. I'll show, I'll, I'll show it to you. Okay. So the, the first time that Jesus has this back and forth with Peter, he says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, and now I'm looking at the USCCB print off that I have to read to you guys, because that's what we have to use, because that's what you can hear at mass. But I want to go back and find the verse chapter 21. I'm at verse 15. There you have it. Okay. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And the word for love that Jesus uses is a nature of a sacrificial love, agapao, to lay down your life. Yeah. It's a sacrificial uh, type of a thing. Okay. It's a, the most intensive form of love. And then, of course, Peter responds to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But when Peter responds, he does not use the same Greek word. He uses a lower level of love in the Greek language, phileo, like a friendship love, right? Which is still has, is, is, is not, I don't want to paint Peter all bad, but the point is that Jesus, do you, will you really lay down your life for me, Peter, right? Will, are you able to love me in that way? And Peter, this is the beautiful part now. Peter's standing there with a the charcoal fire burning in front of him. Finally, some people make, make Peter, put Peter down for this. I think it's quite the opposite. Peter finally has learned the most important lesson of all, and that is he can't do it on his can't own. Can't do it on my own. Right? Yeah. And so he says, Lord, you know that I'm, I love you at least in this way. And then Peter asked the second, or Jesus asked the second time, right? Do you love me? Do you have this sacrificial love, Peter? And the second time, Peter again is unable to say he does. And then the third time, Peter becomes sad. And why? Because the word that Jesus uses in the Greek is not the original sacrificial love. He actually comes down to Peter's level. He says, Peter, do you at least have a friendship love for me? And Peter says, yes, I, I do. I do have that, that love for you. And it says Peter was sad because he was unable to kind of graduate to that sacrificial love. But this is, this is Peter's great confession. And that's what's beautiful about it. Peter says, no longer, I, I can no longer live. Right? It's no longer me who's going to accomplish these things. And then Jesus reveals to him this important thing because Peter said, I will go with you. I will give my life for you, right? And then look at what, look at what Jesus says here. When you were young, I got lost. What verse am I in here, Annie? Um, you are in verse like yeah. Few, okay, there it is. There it is verse verse eighteen. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, right back there in the la at the Last Supper, right when you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would, Peter. You said you would go to the cross with me, but you didn't, right? Uh, but when you are old. You will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you would not go. And the fathers of the church and the, the great saints have always pointed out, this is a prophecy of Peter's martyrdom in which the tradition has it that Peter went to Rome and a persecution broke out and they were searching for him. And the Christians in Rome convinced him to leave the city. Mm -hmm. So he did. And walking out of the city gates, he looked up and he saw Jesus. Quo Vadis. Yes. I've been to that spot yes, in Rome. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Where are you going, Peter? And he turned him around, 
and by the strength of Jesus, brought him back to what would become his, uh, his, his martyrdom. And so uh, this is a great prophecy of that and, and a great reminder to all of us that though we, we want, yes, certainly we want to love Christ as he has loved us. Ultimately, ultimately, it is only by the grace of God that we are going to be saved, not by our own strength. Yeah, our communion with God is, is, is by his grace alone, not by ours, not by, our, by our, our will, our desires and so forth like that. Yeah, and uh, just to, to kind of close out the conversation on this gospel passage, it stood out to me that, that John doesn't write, you know, that Jesus was signifying the type of death that Peter would die. He says that he was signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. I mean, that says something, doesn't it? Well, Annie, it's what I was saying earlier about St. Irenaeus, right? The glory of God is, is man fully alive, but the, the life of man is the vision of God. And this is, he, he glorifies God, how? In, 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 in this total transformation is not my will, but thy will be done. Right. And then, and now man is fully glorified right now. Now Jesus can fully live in Peter and take him to where he would not otherwise go. And so it is a strange thing that the death would glorify God. Well, yes, if we understand death in the sense of the, the, the total transformation, the death to myself that I might live for God. And then what happens in our bodies, if the world wants to call that death, these things don't matter anymore. We've already died. I said earlier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, speaking of, of, of glorifying God, I mean, we, we see in, in the second reading as, as we move into the book of Revelation chapter five, that all will one day glorify God. That, that's right, Annie. You know, we don't have to spend much time on this because we have a great study at the ICC once again, the apocalypse of St. John understanding the book of revelation i highly recommend it it was a very early talk that we held at the institute of catholic culture my brother father sebastian to give an excellent study of the book of revelation but here we have this vision in revelation chapter 5 verse 11 through 12 as i had mentioned last week the book of revelation is john standing at the altar on, on patmos and suddenly the entire of the entirety of the liturgy that is being celebrated everything the veil opens and he sees what is on, on this side of the veil, under veil, right? Bread and wine and all these things sure. transform. And the people gathered around him are all of a sudden, he, it is the throne of God. He sees the divine liturgy taking place. Yeah. And around that throne are God's people and all of creation glorifying him and, and, and singing out with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom and strength, honor and glory and blessing. And then to, to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing, honor, glory, might forever and ever. And the four living creatures answered, amen. You've got to go back. What is Scott Hahn's book on this? To Lamb's Supper, lamb right? Supper. Yeah. Excellent study. So you want, really, it's a great time at this, this time of year as we're reading through the book of Revelation. Do that study with my brother, Father Sebastian, the Institute of Catholic Culture, the Apocalypse of St. John, understanding the book of Revelation. Get yourself a copy of the Lamb's Supper, Scott Hahn. Excellent book. Then I would just say this, and we in conclusion, then engage in the liturgy and realize that when you are singing the Amen, 
at, at mass, when you're singing out, holy, 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 you are truly participating in the divine liturgy, the transformation of this entire created order uh, by, the, by the gift of God's life. And, the, and, and now all things filled with God's life become what they were originally meant to do, right? Water now gives newness of life. Bread not only gives strength to the body, but now to the soul because it is the body and blood of Jesus Christ that we receive. And all of creation is transformed by the great announcement of the resurrection of Christ our God into whom we have been baptized. To him be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is risen. Indeed he is risen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.